This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us again as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, death of an icon, he said, she said, and the dangers of presidential press advance. We'll take a look at the impact Steve Jobs had on the world of polyoptics and the culmination of the Chris Christie and Sarah Palin will they or won't they run for president parlor game. Our lead guest, Jeremy Gaines of MSNBC, another lifetime ago, he served in the Clinton administration and led the press around the globe. And then a polyoptics first. From listener to guest, we're joined by Edward Adams to discuss the polyoptic struggles within the federal judiciary. I'm joined by Josh King, of course, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, I say it every week, but I will say it again. It is great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam, this week, although it's a little more somber than usual. You know, you come home one of the days this week, breaking news expected, but you never expected to come in actually at that moment, the news over your mobile device, probably an Apple device, that Steve Jobs was dead probably 30 years before his time. The co-founder of uh, Apple Computers has been an icon uh, of our generation. and He's someone who will be listed uh, as one of the most important men of the 20th and the 21st century, Josh. Yeah, think about it, Adam. I mean, back to 1984, that amazing ad that ran oh, during I love the Super that Bowl. And, and let's put it in context. It's 1984. It's an election year. This is the year when Hal Reine is going to uh, reveal Ronald Reagan's campaign, Morning in America, against Walter Mondale. And we began what for us is 35, 40 years of a company and a range of products that is defined by the visual. The man always appears in blue jeans and a black sweater. His presentations at Macworld and product unveiling conferences are models of how you communicate to the public. And we all learned from the way that Apple talked about its products the way we talk about our candidates. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. The implications of that ad uh, in the context of its time were powerful. But as as you've come to know, as we've all come to know, Josh, Apple, the Macintosh computer, the rollout of the first iPod, which was so understated. And, you know, you had this idea that this may be the big hot thing for a little while. But, of course, it turned out to be... The, the innovation that sparked so many that is just an integral part of everybody's everyday life. It's the delivery vehicle that first transformed the mu- music industry and now the television and movie industry. Indeed, uh, from, from a polyoptics perspective, the uh, advent of visual communication uh, has paralleled in many ways the growth of Apple Computer and the ability to create what you want, to, to see it, to be able to make it come true to have multiple layers of information, to integrate messaging, to be able to take it from a digital environment and have it uh, printed life-size for a president of the United States or even a set design for an MSNBC presidential candidates debate. All of that 
came out of a generation of people who were empowered by Macintosh. And you're right, it is indeed quite sad. And just a little bit unexpected, even though we knew that he was battling with cancer, just to see him pass away at such an early age of 56. It's ironic too, Adam. You know, I'm thinking about our roles in in political uh, production. And in in the sense, we just listened to that clip from the 84 commercial, and it was supposed to be liberating. It was supposed to be uh, uh, anti-1984, this Orwellian vision of the future. And yet when advanced people moving around the country and around the world to uh, design events, establish their own creativity. They started emailing back photographs in real time of sites that were about to be built for the president of the United States. It actually gave places like the White House a whole lot more control. They wouldn't let you do anything unless you sent back pictures and designed site diagrams on CAD CAM programs on 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 an iMac and then an iPad. So in a sense, it has allowed corporations and political organizations to exert a heck of a lot more control over what's happening out in the field. I love the fact that you've pointed out that uh, the White House is constantly seeking control, even in the realm of uh, advance and production. And of course that's true. And despite uh, the vision and the creative chops that we and others have brought to the job, my experience in the White House, and and granted this was uh, in the 2000s, we were the only ones outside of the photo editors who had Macintosh computers. We were those guys who IT shunned and didn't want to hear from because we had a whole set of Macintosh computers and we demanded that we had to have them and we couldn't do our jobs without them, Josh. Well, one of the guests we're going to have later on, uh, Jeremy Gaines from MSNBC, an old pal from the White House, will recall that I used to go on these pre-advances like you did, Adam, but but maybe a decade before, and I would be carrying a instant Polaroid and I'd be taking Polaroids of these sites and bring them back to the White House and laying them out in a storyboard so, oh, we'd get our, we'd get our pictures maybe two or three weeks after we initially saw I these sites. I love that. That's the very definition of how would we live without digital photographs. Well, you proved it can be done. I didn't have to do it. Um, but it's not the only thing that's going on this week, nope. and I think it's worth Worth noting that uh, a lot of the uh, desire for a new narrative in the 2012 presidential race, certainly for the Republican nomination, uh, culminated with two very interesting announcements. One of them from the, the governor of New Jersey, a first-term governor, Chris Christie, who finally came out and said he's not going to run. So, New Jersey, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with me. <laughs> Let me say this. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the many people, both in New Jersey and around the country, who have spoken to me over these last weeks and months. I'm grateful for their confidence in me. I'm grateful for the faith that they place in me. It's been unbelievably humbling and inspiring. Well, Josh, you heard it here first. I think we both came to the conclusion there was zero chance that uh, Chris Christie was actually going to pull a 180. But what did you make of that press conference? Well, I I was... I was I allowed myself to be convinced that there was a possibility that he would get into the race. There was that piece in the Sunday Times about how his team was was looking at the logistical possibilities of running a campaign. But as I looked this week at a release by Mitt Romney of the national security team that he's put together, it goes down 30 people. It covers every different aspect of a, of a potential national security White House. And you realize that uh, while Christie is a very attractive candidate in many ways, 
when a person like Mitt Romney has been building their campaign for so long, his infrastructure is in place for an Iowa caucus that may happen between Christmas and New Year. And as you and I talked earlier this week, I actually think Chris Christie made a calculated decision based on the 50-50 odds of Obama's reelection at this point, and that the incumbent has so many advantages on his side that as long as he gets reelected, Chris Christie has four more years to get four more years of experience as governor of New Jersey. He can get his political organization in shape. He can get himself in shape. And as we'll know one year from now, if whether Obama is reelected or not, the Christie campaign will begin. Indeed, uh, this was about Chris Christie's decision, ultimately, that it was not his time. But... As everyone focused on this, and of course, you know, we've already talked about the passing of Steve Jobs and the rather understated rollout of the iPhone 4S, which uh, underwhelmed so many, uh, there was yet one more important political statement that came just on the heels of, uh, of Governor Christie, and it was uh, Sarah Palin saying that she was not going to run for president, Josh. And I think that's just sort of an an odd punctuation to the Sarah Palin story throughout the year, that she has managed to co-opt other people's news, uh, whether it was Mitt Romney in New Hampshire or Rick Perry in Iowa, always trying to sort of stay within the news cycle and be visible. And uh, she made this sort of very low-key statement about not running, and frankly, I thought the logic of her of her rationale for not running was rather tortured, and it's not surprising that it has not got much attention compared to her earlier uh, stepping out into the spotlight. I can't disagree with you there, but one of the things that I did note that I wanted to bring forward here for the polyoptics audience is that... uh, The folks from Passcode Creative, remember, we've had them on the show. They are dedicated to the visual communication support of Sarah Palin, released a video just this week, uh, right on the heels of her announcement. And it helps to solidify what I believe she wants for herself in the political arena, which is to be a kingmaker and somebody who can coalesce support uh, around the Tea Party principles. Let's have a listen, and I want uh, people to to get an idea of, of how this was coordinated. It was a strategic element, and uh, of course you can see all of it uh, up on our website. The challenges before us, they can seem daunting, but we must not lose our optimistic spirit. It's with optimism that America has always come through throughout our history. We can get this country back on the right track. You don't need an office or a title to make a difference. You you don't need an office or a title to make a difference. That's the core message of this video, and it certainly puts Sarah Palin, from a visual perspective, in a very commanding position. Well, if only you can run a campaign constantly with a musical underscore and intercut edits of F-15s flying overhead. That's not the way presidential campaigns are run, and that's not the way campaigns are conducted out in public in front of TV cameras. When you're a passcode creative and you can put together a beautiful minute-and-a-half montage the way Tim Pawlenty did and the way Rick Perry did, that's great for the YouTube audience, but when you actually want to get out there and try and persuade people that you have something to say, Sarah Palin, if she wants to make a difference in the 2012 campaign, 
is going to have to go out there and talk and talk and talk and do interviews because it, she just cannot get her message across only on the back of a passcode creative video. Well, having said that, and again, I can't disagree with you. I am uh, applauding their efforts, but uh, I think we should turn now to our first guest who's a... Uh, a real expert and somebody with so much experience, a former colleague of yours uh, in the White House, Jeremy Gaines. Thanks, Adam. Glad, glad to be here. It's really great to have you here. Uh, I know that uh, you, along with uh, Josh King, uh, started your uh, most important parts of your political career uh, helping to get President uh, Bill Clinton elected. That's right. Uh, a lot of memories sitting here with uh, Josh, who probably traveled to about uh, 60, 65 countries together over about five or six years. We should ask Jeremy, though, if we go back to the summer of 1992, coming out of the Democratic Convention in New York. Uh, Jeremy, you got onto the campaign on a rather unconventional route, and stowaway is not usually the, the, the first thing on a resume for a presidential campaigner, is it? That's true, Josh. Uh, I was... Uh, one of those eager 21-year-old volunteers, uh, both at the convention and then on uh, the first bus trip that Clinton took from uh, New York, where the convention was, to St. Louis. And uh, really, uh, at the end of the trip, on a dare, uh, just walked up the back steps of uh, his campaign plane and got myself to Little Rock and uh, became a small bit, small legend. <laughs> Wait, no, hold on a second, office. guys. Is this the same bus tour, Josh, that Mort Engelberger was talking about when he was on Polyoptics? That's right. Mort, uh, Mort gave Jeremy a specific uh, instruction, and if we hear a little bit of our interview from Mort from a few weeks ago, we'll understand sort of the rocky start in which Jeremy got off to the campaign. On the first bus trip, we had uh, five buses, uh, one for each of the, uh, the candidates, but one for Governor Clinton, one for Senator Gore and his staff, one for assorted campaign staff, and then two buses for press, which, you know, held maybe 45 or 50 people. And the only sure thing I knew, though, is that we would have the press pool ahead of us when we left New York, and we would have film of the bus on the New Jersey Turnpike, the buses on the New Jersey Turnpike, with the New York City skyline in the background. And the only thing I really could guarantee was that I felt that we would lead the network news that night with that picture. Well, of course, what happened was that the press pool got stuck in traffic ahead of us. They never got the picture, and by the time we reached the first, <laughs> uh, uh, what do you call it, toll booth on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike, the police in the car ahead of me called back to say that there was a stowaway on the press, on the staff bus. So immediately we had to stop the Secret Service, remove the, uh, this homeless person who had been camping out on the bus, and off we went. Jeremy, uh, can you give us a little more backstory on that about how this was your first great blunder in presidential politics? Well, Josh, I don't know if you want to pin it all on me. Uh, I, uh, first of all, had never driven a van before. <laughs> had never driven in Manhattan before. And uh, was was assigned the role of driving this uh, this TV pool uh, van to get that picture, and I was given that instruction. However, um, I was waiting for my instruction to depart, and uh, never never got uh, that instruction. Mind you, it was 1992. I had no cell phone, no radio, uh, no no piece of identification saying I was with the campaigner at all. Any you know official. Uh, capacity, uh, no means of communication. And uh, we got to the Lincoln Tunnel a couple minutes ahead of Clinton's bus, 
And a uh, very friendly New York City cop said, kid, you ain't going nowhere. And uh, <clears throat> obviously, we uh, didn't get out of the uh, tunnel and uh, get that picture. Now, uh, thinking about it um, almost 20 years later, and uh, having driven out of the Lincoln Tunnel uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, I don't know where I was supposed to stop, given that there's no shoulder. and uh, There is really, no shoulder. And really no place to stop. But then again, I didn't know that. Uh, you were just a kid from Carlton College. I, I was just a kid driving a van. Uh, with an, it was an ABC crew that day, too. And, and to this day, when I run into them, uh, you know, they still uh, tell me how they thank God that they uh, survived because I then continued, uh, knowing that my job was to leap ahead and remembering that I was behind. Uh, we, we needed to get to Camden, New Jersey, our first uh, stop on the bus tour ahead of the buses and, and get them rolling in. So I was... Uh, uh, driving on the New Jersey Turnpike at 90 miles an hour uh, on the shoulder, uh, and I passed uh, the uh, police cars and the motorcade, and uh, was later told that uh, that uh, there was also some chatter about that uh, up in the lead vehicle and some question about whether uh, the tire should be blown out on that van. Well, suffice to say, it all worked out okay, because you did make it to St. Louis. You did stow away on the campaign plane. You did make it to Little Rock. Harry Thomason, one of the president's good friends, along with Linda Bloodworth Thomason, helped facilitate you know, your entree into the campaign. You made it with me to Washington, to the White House, and then we started our, our global tr- uh, globetrotting together. But let's move forward then, uh, probably three years. You and I are in Moscow, and it's VE Day. Uh, we're celebrating it on Red Square in Russia. We've got all of the former Soviet, now Russian military, about to parade in front of us. You and I are outside the walls of the Kremlin with a press pool and our KGB escort, and he doesn't really want to let us into the Red Square, does he? Uh, No, he doesn't, Josh. I'm glad (laughs) glad we're uh, doing a highlight of This Is Your Life uh, for me today. But uh, uh, that was quite a chaotic scene. Uh, Talk about uh, miscommunications. Uh, There was no way to communicate. None of us spoke Russian. None of them spoke English. We were dropped off with the rest of the international press uh, and bussed in from the Russian foreign ministry and uh, plopped down in front of that phalanx of of Red Army uh, that you described. And... uh, I was at the front of the crowd, uh, pushed by not only the uh, American photographers, but the world's photographers. Uh, we know that they can be a pushy bunch. And uh, I was pushed right into the, this this line of, uh, of soldiers and uh, had no ability to, to really push back until uh, one of them decided he was going to... Uh, uh, Use show who was in, short, in charge and, uh, shall we say, grab me below the belt. Uh, and uh, I suddenly got uh, superhuman powers and was able to move back about five feet. And needless to say, uh, it was uh, the subject of many press briefings and, uh, and uh, noted uh, uh, in many, many articles. So often the press advance officer is not really in charge of keeping the press in line, but really being the the general that gets them where they need to be. That was your job to make sure that you could fulfill the promise of coverage for the President of the United States. And uh, these stories, uh, as funny as they are, uh, are repeated over and over again, Jeremy, because when we go on foreign trips on behalf of the President of the United States, no matter who that is, there's always uh, a bump in the road, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that was uh, probably the most extreme example uh, 
you know, uh, Josh and I, another another uh, uh, very memorable scene was in Assad's palace in Damascus, where um, we were uh, told right before we went in for the photo op of President Clinton and President Assad that uh, the rules uh, per our Syrian hosts were no questions. And I, of course, knew uh, better than uh, to tell the press corps that they couldn't ask questions. I know. So you I, don't. You weren't even going to tell them that because they'd just laugh at you. They'd be like, well, Shut yes. Up. I, I said it in a way, uh, noting the level of security uh, that was All present. All the guns that were being in, held. In, uh, in Damascus, I, I said it as, as merely a, uh, a guide from our, uh, our hosts. Uh, cut to uh, a few moments later, we're in the... Uh, in the photo op, and of course, uh, NBC's intrepid Andrea Mitchell asks both President Clinton and President Assad a question as she's asking who uh, the person who I How later dare found. a woman ask a question exactly. in Damascus? And as she's asking, uh, the person who I later found out was Assad's uh, head of security, and God knows what he did with people, um, grabbed her right arm. I happened to be standing next to her left arm, and I just instinctively grabbed it. Uh, so it was a fantastic scene of, of Andrea Mitchell sort of suspended uh, like with a two pretzel. men pulling, <laughs> pulling her from, from either side while uh, Assad was a- answering her question and President Clinton was laughing heartily. <laughs> <laughs> but what you do today, uh, your current uh, iteration of Jeremy Gaines, you're the vice president of communications at MSNBC. And uh, one of the things that uh, I love about MSNBC is that uh, you all have a, a very good sense of who you are and what you're doing these days. And we've spent some time of late here at Polyoptics discussing something that was really a television first. And I want to get your take on it. Um, Mark Halpern uh, from Time Magazine joined one of your broadcasts uh, with Willie Geist in the middle of the night. Some would say early in the morning on the East Coast, but it was from a laboratory on board a Delta flight. Were you aware of this before it happened? And how early did they loop you in to say, hey, people are going to be calling about this? And then I guess secondarily, uh, Jeremy, is how long did it take for Delta to get on the horn to you? You know, it's funny because if I had known ahead of time, I probably wouldn't have slept at all that night uh, because, well, it, it made for great TV and uh, uh, quite possibly a uh, television first. Uh, and uh, I enjoyed watching it. Um, I, of course, was concerned that uh, someone on that uh, red eye from L.A. to JFK would be complaining about uh, the man who went into the restroom with his computer and he's mumbling to himself. And, <laughs> and suddenly we have F-15s escorting the uh, the plane to some uh, some place in the Midwest to land. So uh, I was just happy that it all went off without a hitch. And actually, surprisingly, uh, Delta didn't reach out to me. I don't know if they reached out to anyone else. Actually, I saw them tweet about it. Sort of uh, uh, boasting about how it came off. It was definitely on their Twitter feed. And let's see if we can hear a little bit of how it sounded, because the audio quality was was great. Mark Halpern is aboard a Delta flight somewhere over the United States. We suspect Western Colorado. And yes, as you can tell from the shot, he is in the laboratory of that flight. He was at the speech at the Reagan Library. Mark, what are we doing here, my man? Are you really in in uh, in the can? I really am. Again, it's a red-eye flight. Didn't want to bother my fellow passengers, so I'm in the quiet room, also known as the laboratory. <laughs> this is uh, the greats at NBC 
broke on. Everybody else are rolling over right now. <laughs> rolling over. <laughs> I thought it was a great piece of television history. And not just because I know Mark and uh, worked with him at ABC News, and not just because it was MSNBC that... that uh, that enjoyed that great bit of television history. But as Josh loves to point out, he was in the can, and that was just funny. Jeremy, you, you left the White House in 1998 and went right to MSNBC in its infancy at a time when I think Brian Williams was beginning his primetime show that was almost a precursor to the nightly news. You've seen so many iterations of morning programming with Don Imus, day part programming, primetime. Can you sort of, because you, you are unique in sort of your ability to look at the entire arc of the history of, of a cable network, talk about where MSNBC started and where you see it today and rolling into the 2012 campaign? Well, it really mirrors uh, the whole cable news uh, industry um, sort of finding its way in, in the new media environment. Uh, I think that uh, in, back in 1996, uh, obviously, uh, the the idea of MSNBC was was very uh, revolutionary and visionary. The idea of marrying up uh, television and uh, the internet and the web, which was which was in its uh, infancy at that point, and as and 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 it was a channel that tried to be sort of everything to everyone. And as time went on, uh, it became. Uh, uh, more and more obvious that uh, cable in a, in a universe of hundreds of channels is really a, uh, a an, an environment for um, for niche broadcasters, uh, sort of each with their own voice and their own identity. Fox, of course, found this out uh, first and foremost, uh, really from 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 the get go. And and for for MSNBC, a, a key turning point was the uh, 2006. Um, election, which was really the point at which the network uh, decided to uh, put the focus on politics and where uh, we started using the tagline, the place for politics. And really, that was that was the point at which um, the network started to take off. And, uh, and obviously, since then, we've taken a more liberal slant in prime time as well, which has been very successful. One of the things that uh, uh, people focus on in Washington is uh, and, and certainly through the lens of cable networks like MSNBC, um, is the the art of the photo op. And we had an example uh, in the last week or so of a very artfully and somewhat secretive photo op that uh, showcased the First Lady of the United States stealing away from the White House in a very low-key um get up really just an average everyday woman going shopping at target and uh jeremy the uh the questions started to f to flow as soon as the picture hit the wires and made drudge you know here she is checking out at target uh which really bespoke her uh ideal of being able to make do uh on a regular budget and uh, starting to think about some of the roles that she played in the 2008 campaign. But she is not a typical housewife. She's certainly the first lady of the United States who goes nowhere without Secret Service protection. And so the question quickly became, well, how did they get that shot? Who tipped off the photographer and why was there only one? Um, what was your take on that as a press advance officer in the Clinton White House and somebody who deals with communications issues uh, all the time at MSNBC? What did you think about that picture? And what did you think about the uh, the judgment call to utilize the AP for a 
very artfully done photo op for the first lady and perhaps even the 2012 campaign, re-election campaign of her husband. You know, two two different thoughts came to mind. One of one of which was, uh, and this isn't this particular photo was is only really the most recent example of that, is that uh, uh, we, you really can't get away with. Uh, the, all the things that we did 15, 20 years ago yeah. in this internet era. Um, everything, just like we have this show talking about uh, this topic, everything is discussed. Everything's on Twitter. Everything is on the internet. Uh, you know, Josh and I have, have often talked about the fact that uh, the photo op that, that we used to arrange uh, after a presidential speech is no longer uh, because it's been debated on the, on the uh, internet and decided to be and uh, you know recreation, and so things have to be done differently. Um, so I think that this may have been something that could have, you know, passed without note fifteen or twenty years ago. So this is old thing. school tactics to you guys. Well, uh, to some degree, and I think the other the other thought that entered my mind is 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 are you better off just having because it's it's sort of normal uh, for a first lady or a president to travel with a photographer to just. Uh, tweet out the picture if we if the white house were to release a picture that doesn't seem like a normal family picture like they're in martha's vineyard and they had a quiet bicycle ride which is normal for their vacation if she does something very uh stage very different from what you'd expect her to be doing and the white house then releases the picture then you'll hear the same cries of foul using a, a, using a different uh, analysis. And so uh, the White House tried something bold, that is, somehow this the AP photographer found out where she would be, when she would be there. Target allowed uh, this photographer in, and the picture got out. Now the question for us is, are we just in our small yes. little echo chamber, and does the rest of America not pay any attention matter. to this except for what's in USA it, Today? It doesn't matter. It's a victory. It is a great uh, picture. It said a lot. You know what? I, I, I agree with you at 30,000 feet. It was a great picture, and it was a victory, but this idea that if they'd taken the picture themselves and they'd released it, they would have been, you know, uh, hailed with, well, of course, it's just imagery and staging and it's puffery and it's it's silliness. You're just trying to sell her as such. But by getting, or some might say using, an AP photographer, they get out from underneath that and now the the trick is the question that we're dealing with. How did it get there? Uh, was that photographer being used? Is this what we've come to to curry favor with administrations to be the one guy? If you call me, I'll be there. I'll make your picture and I'll release it. And maybe it is all inside baseball, but we'll move on, Josh, because I know the Clintonites uh, had celebrated a fantastic reunion just this past weekend. That's right. It's been 20 years since Governor Bill Clinton got in front of the old state house in Little Rock and announced his candidacy for president of the United States around the idea of opportunity, responsibility, and community. And you can't hold a 20-year reunion of a election night or an inauguration day because it follows the same four-year quadrennial cycle and you would be drowned out by what's happening in present day. But if you have an odd year, like 2011 compared to 1991, it occurred to Stephanie Street and Doug Band and President Clinton himself at the Clinton Foundation that they ought to be. They ought to call for a reunion using Facebook, uh, and have everyone come on down to Little Rock, uh, to the Clinton Presidential Center, the bridge to the 21st century, and the 
Groundswell started in August when Stephanie put a little note on Facebook, and Jeremy and I paid some attention to it. And before you knew it, 5,000 people had RSVP'd and made their way down to Little Rock. And Jeremy, I don't know what your view of it was, but, you know, a lot of people looked very much the same. A lot of spirits were uh, heightened, a lot of feeling like, well, you know, this current president is dealing with a raft of challenges, many of the making of today's media age. And I don't know if President Clinton could have run the same campaign in 2012 that he ran in 1992, but we felt, gathering back in Little Rock, that we were sort of whisked back into a time machine. Let's hear a little bit of what President Clinton said. Maybe I am crazy as I age, but I am not pessimistic. I still believe in the promise of this country. I still believe that every place, every place in America can be a place called hope. And if you really believe in what we did here all those years ago, if you're still proud of it, and most importantly, if you want it to happen again and give your kids and grandkids and for some of you your great-grandkids what you know in your bones they deserve play again Jeremy what, what, what did you think in Little Rock last week you know what I was thinking was uh, this was a group of people uh, who uh, really went through a seminal experience together um, you know there's nothing like working on a, a presidential campaign and, and, I, and I really mean the you know, uh, the outsider, not not an incumbent's re-election, but uh, sitting in Little Rock, Arkansas, trying to get a president elected, uh, a lot of young people in their 20s. Um, it was really a seminal moment in all of our careers and our lives. And, uh, uh, you know, amazing to see all of those people um, from the famous to the uh, not so famous. And uh, it seemed both like a lifetime ago and like it was just yesterday. Um, you know, as we come towards the end of this uh, this discussion, this interview with uh, Jeremy Gaines, I want to ask you something that transcends um, both uh, your experience in the White House and, of course, your uh, experience at, at MSNBC. Um, we've got a, a new film coming out, right? What's it called? The Ides of March? The Ides of March. George Clooney directed Grant Haslov's screenwriter. What 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 are your thoughts on this, uh, Josh? And and what do you think it, uh, it it means to the popular media and how it's going to be received across this country? I saw it at a at a critic screening this week in Manhattan, and uh, I was I went in with low expectations, but it, it's going to open wide a- across America this weekend, and it's definitely worth a visit because the the dialogue is so pitch perfect about what a Clinton campaign or a Governor Perry campaign or a Barack Obama campaign does in these battleground states. This the action here takes place across Ohio, and they're desperately trying to win this primary. And if they win this primary and the remaining delegates against their Democratic opponent, George Clooney's candidate is assured the nomination and probably the election. And the dialogue written by Grant Heslov, based on a play called Farragut North, is as if any one of us were sitting in a campaign headquarters. Let's hear it. Help people get an education. We're going to create a national unity. We're going to teach young people a trade. And we're going to get them out of debt for their college loans. Now, where does that fail? All of that's exactly right, Governor. It's just if you're going to do it, do it. Make it mandatory, not voluntary. That'll pull well. Mandatory. 
Everybody who turns 18 or graduates high school gives two years of service to his or her country. And for that, your college education is paid for, period. Paul likes this. Mm -hmm. The beauty of it is that everybody who's over the age of 18 or past the age of eligibility will be for it. Why not? And all of the others can't vote. Politics is about ambition, opportunity, and compromise. Jeremy, does that sound like a real situation to you? It totally does, uh, and it sort of brings uh, brings goosebumps uh, for those of us who've worked on campaigns. Rings very true. Indeed, Jeremy, I think that uh, the, those experiences that we've all had uh, play out uh, even more powerfully on the silver screen, and I think most Americans who've never had the opportunity can get a little insight there. You know, even as we've been taping uh, this conversation here for uh, polyoptics on POTUS, I uh, caught out of the corner of my eye part of this uh, lean forward campaign on MSNBC and uh, some of it really puts me off but then there are some of them that really engage me uh, and I want to applaud you uh, Jeremy for everything that you all are doing over there uh, you are a conversation piece because it, uh, it it begs the question constantly of what's real what's true whose opinion matters more and uh, whether or not uh, politics is and should be at the center of uh, the focus of a network. And, and clearly, I think you've proven that it, that it can and that it should be. And I think you guys are going to be very instrumental, as you already have been, bringing the assets of NBC News forward uh, in these uh, candidates' debates. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on Polyoptics. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, John. Adam, that was a great conversation with my old pal, Jeremy. Jeremy Gaines is one of those guys that if you didn't know him, you might not know him, uh, but he's such a, an important fixture of a national cable network like MSNBC, but his formative experience in the Clinton administration is just fantastic. I mean, he shares the same values and insights into the process that we do because he's lived it and he'd been there. I loved hearing from him. And, you know, you're in either at the White House or at a cable network like MSNBC, your skin has to be so thick. And you get that training on a campaign and you bring it to a place like MSNBC and you sit in your office and you're watching the feed of your network, of Fox News Channel, of CNN, and you're wondering every minute, are we doing something better or worse than our competition? And believe me, when, when Jeremy talked about the arc of his career at MSNBC that goes back to the beginning of the network, he's seen so many hosts and show ideas come and go. He's seen things that have erupted on air, major snafus that he has had to defuse through this incredible uh, microscope of what happens in the media business, especially in New York City. I think one of the things that I took great personal interest in there was Jeremy's description of what it was like at the very beginning. Because I was just getting out of college. Mind you, you were just finishing up service uh, to the President of the United States, but I was just getting out of college in 1996-97 when the Fox News Channel was coming just on the heels of of, uh, of MSNBC, and that's where I started. And so I appreciate that narrative arc, and I love the way that Jeremy characterized it. This idea that it wasn't until uh, maybe nine years later that they finally felt that they had a voice and that they knew what they needed to do and reposition themselves, and they've just taken off like a shot since then, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And, you know, and the arc of MSNBC 
and we were, we began the show talking about Steve Jobs, is also the story of technology and of how uh, advanced technology and the immediacy of video coverage has changed the way we get our news and, and process our information. And along the lines, like the one thing, Adam, that is, has changed so little is coverage of our federal court system. That's a great point. Uh, you have to know, if you're listening to us here on POTUS, uh, Politics of the United States, Channel 124 here on Sirius XM, we love to get your emails. People participate with Polyoptics on our Facebook page. We get emails that come in through polyoptics.com. But we got one of those emails from a listener who we have turned around and asked to join our show, Josh, somebody who's made some really great points and has had some really great federal service himself. Now, Edward Adams, uh, we'll call him Ed, uh, started as a reporter and editor of the New York Law Journal and the New York Post, and then he took up an interesting role as public information officer of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. And and it, it was in the last decade, after 9-11 and before, and you had... Uh, trials that happened in federal court there, the, the so-called 20th hijacker, Zacharias Moussaoui, the American Taliban, John Walker Lind, the Atlanta Olympics bomber, Eric Rudolph, and a, a guy like Ed Adams, who starts as a reporter and then works in the sort of uh, uh, antiquated system of the federal courts and, and where the only images that you would get out of the courtroom are from the, the, the court artist or, or the network hired uh, uh, artist, he has to sort of help bridge between the many challenges of, of helping viewers understand in a visual way uh, decisions and complexities for which we don't have the added benefit of the TV camera. And we're so ha- gratified to have Ed Adams join us today. Welcome, Ed. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. We uh, appreciate you being a, uh, a fan of the show and a listener, but you know when we when we read your comments and your email to us, it resonated uh, mostly because we've lived a lot of the history that you've been a part of. And for people around the country who don't know the uh, federal court in the Eastern District of Virginia, for all of us, it's right there in Alexandria. And if you've covered politics in Washington and you've been charged with covering uh, the presidency and other things in the post 9-11 world, we were right there in your backyard. So uh, I guess we start with saying, how was it for you to be that conduit for the press and the rest of the country to uh, interface with the court at that high level? Well, it was challenging to say the least. And and I think it's worth trying to draw a distinction between what you guys uh, did when you were at, at your respective White House gigs and what people like me who worked inside the courts do uh, for, for the media. Um, you know, a lot of federal judges love to complain about coverage uh, of the media. Uh, but by the same token, many of them don't really do much to try and improve that coverage. Uh, and I think that's a function of the fact that, you know, federal judges have jobs for life, absent some sort of act of moral turpitude for which they could be impeached. Uh, and so whether they have good coverage or bad coverage or no coverage at all it doesn't really matter uh, to their existence, whereas obviously politicians need to get as much coverage and as much good coverage as they can. Um, so while you know politicians have learned to live with the soundbite landscape that we all are a part of, um, judges really have not done that because they don't have to do that. And so the very small number of people who work inside the courts trying to serve as a go-between between the media and the judiciary find a very challenging set of circumstances. So bring us back to what 
the federal court faced in, in Virginia uh, f- during the trial of Zacharias Massawi, I, f- I always found it interesting, Ed, that the only real image we had of Massawi was the uh, orange-shirted mugshot, and we never, never ever saw who he was again. We certainly never uh, got any sense of what was happening inside the court. So what were the complexities of that case, and then how were you able to allow the media and the courtroom to receive the verdict at the same time? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, the the challenge always with federal criminal cases is that there is a federal criminal procedure rule which prohibits cameras in the courtroom for federal criminal trials. So the the option of having any kind of video coming from inside the courtroom was simply not uh, available to us. Um, And so one of our challenges we knew as we we got close to the time when the verdict was going to be coming down in the case was, you know, how do we go about making sure everybody gets the information as quickly and as efficiently as possible. We had seen just a couple years before, in the case of Martha Stewart, who was charged with insider trading up in New York City, that reporters ran from that courthouse down to the uh, stakeout positions in front of the building so quickly that, in fact, some media organizations misreported the verdict and said that Stewart had been found innocent when, in fact, she was found guilty. Um, and, and plus, the people running out of the courthouse just was a, an incredibly undignified sight. It looked like a circus. So the judge I worked for, Leona Brinkimo, was concerned that we, A, maintain the dignity of the proceedings as much as we could, and secondly, that people report what was going to be a very complicated verdict as, as accurately as possible. We talked about having me go down to the pool microphone stand in front of the courthouse, in front of which we had arrayed about 27 different stakeout positions for various media organizations, and simultaneously announced the verdict there at the same time it was being read up in the courtroom. That seemed a little bit too sort of advanced for the judge. But then I got an assist in my effort to convince her to do so, oddly enough, from ABC News. Uh, a couple days before the verdict was going to come down, uh, one of the producers mounted a camera on the rooftop of a private building just across from the courthouse. And in the time that it took for him to go downstairs and then go back up to the seventh floor where the courtroom was located to take a look to see whether or not they could see into the courtroom, um, the marshals had already taken down that camera um, because not only could it see into the hallway outside the courtroom on the seventh floor, it could also see into the jury deliberation room. And obviously the marshals were concerned that they not have broadcast of the jury deliberation in action. Uh, what they had intended to do at ABC was to have one of the reporters walk out of the courtroom, hold up a sign saying guilty or not guilty, and they'd get probably uh, maybe between a minute and two minutes before everybody else they'd have the verdict. Um, so when that camera was removed, I got called back up to the judges' chambers, uh, and suddenly the idea of walking downstairs and announcing the verdict simultaneously uh, didn't seem like such a, a crazy idea after all. So we became, I think, the first and, to my knowledge, the only federal court that has ever employed that as an approach. I guess I wonder, with your insight, whether or not uh, the advent of technology and even keeping phones and smartphones and all manner of communication outside of the, the chamber, do you have a sense that uh, we will be able to transcend this uh, idea that we can't bring cameras, that we can't bring uh, average folks into a federal uh, courtroom for a criminal trial. Is it destiny that we will someday have that uh, that bridge taken up and that we'll be right there seated alongside everyone else in the audience to hear what the judge has to say? 
I think that day will come, but I think it will come exceedingly slowly. You see more of the, the sort of activity along those lines happening at the state court level than you do at the federal court level. There's a great example of, of a, a court in Quincy, Massachusetts, just an ordinary trial court, district court there in the state system uh, that has teamed up with Boston's NPR station to broadcast over the Internet uh, all of its proceedings. And you can click into a live stream uh, whenever you want to. I'm doing it right now. There are 50 viewers, according to what I'm looking at on their website, watching what is really sort of a traffic court and a very low-level criminal court in, in progress right now. If anybody wants to take a look at that, they can go to the website opencourt.us. Uh, but I think at the federal level, it's going to come much, much slower. I mean, at, when I worked at the federal court in Alexandria, we banned all electronic devices from the entire building. You could not bring in, nor could you check, a cell phone, a BlackBerry, a pager, um, anything at all. In fact, uh, I once got into a, a dispute with the marshals about whether or not a CNN reporter could bring in her breast pump uh, to the building. I mean, it got that sort of silly. But point. the idea was that, uh, you know, leave it in the car. We're not bringing electronic devices uh, into the courts. Uh, you know, Josh and I have, have talked about this a little bit, too, because ultimately the optics of all of this plays out, just as you said, right in front of the courthouse. And uh, it leaves, perhaps, uh, the, the average person wanting, because these are very nuanced and very uh, subtle elements of the law that sometimes are being um, adjudicated. Uh, and, and being a layperson, it's just hard to know. And so you're left with the, uh, the emotion and the reaction of the uh, people involved in the case uh, coming out to that stakeout microphone and, and the sort of subtleties of the judgment are lost on folks. Would you advocate that? I, I know you say it's going to be a, uh, a slow roll over a long time. Do you think there's a place for the, for the cameras in the federal, federal judiciary? Oh, absolutely. I, I would absolutely be an advocate of that. I think that it shows the courts in action, and nothing, frankly, is more impressive to me in terms of, of our justice system than actually seeing it happen in front of your eyes. I had been a reporter for many years before I joined the court. Like a lot of reporters, I was kind of cynical about the way the justice system works. i got to tell you, after working inside that building for five years, I came away much more convinced that judges, almost to a person, try and strive and do the best that they possibly can to see that justice is done in their courtrooms. But there is an enormous amount of, of resistance in the federal system to cameras. Just this week, uh, Justices Scalia and Breyer were up on the Hill testifying in front of the House Judiciary, or I'm sorry, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and they were asked about, you know, what about cameras in your courtroom, in the, in the Supreme Court? And you would expect there, there are far fewer problems with it, right? I mean, there's no juries, there are no witnesses, none of those sort of ancillary issues to be concerned with. Neither one of them seemed particularly interested in the idea. And Scalia said, for every 10 people who would sit through our entire proceedings, there'd be another 10,000 who would only see 30 seconds of it. And I think that's really the core issue for most judges is they spend a lot of time and effort looking at why one party or another should win a case. But oftentimes the coverage they know and we know as professionals in the media would be boiled down to 30 seconds or a minute. Who won? Not so much the intricacies of why they won. And that, that rubs a lot of judges the wrong way. Now, politicians have come to live in that environment and, and be successful in it, but judges just in the main are not willing to take that step and say, 
that it's worthwhile having the public be able to see everything that we do in the court. You left the federal uh, court system. You became the editor and publisher of ABA Journal and then the publisher of American Bar Association, and you now run the website uh, edwardadams.com, uh, and would be in, would, we'd love to hear what, what you can find at that site. And also, as you reflect on your time at the court and as you made your way back into journalism and working uh, with the American Bar Association, looking back at what the justices have said in the past, uh, former former Supreme Court Justice David Souter said, I think, uh, the day that uh, you see a camera come into our courtroom, it's going to roll over my dead body. And you have uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who at another point, speaking publicly, has talked about how much more support are needed for federal judges. Don't you think that if we admire, if we had a chance to admire their work more closely the way you have, that all of us would support more the work of the federal courts? I think that that's true. I mean, a lot of federal judges bemoan the lack of civics education in the United States, and it is, in my judgment at least, appalling how little people understand about uh, their court system. Uh, at the ABA Journal, when I was there, we went out uh, just on the street and asked the passersby to name a Supreme Court justice. Ten out of ten people could not name a single one Amazing. of them. Uh, it, it just shows you, uh, you know, how little uh, they really know about the system and how it works. I think the cameras could make an enormous difference. Um, you mentioned my website, simply my personal website, where I, I do talk a bit about some of these issues and how I've confronted them both as a journalist and also when I was with the court. Right now I'm sort of between gigs. I left the ABA because I wanted to focus my career entirely on digital media, both broadcast as well as online. And fortunately I'm having some conversations with some of the leading legal news and information companies about joining them in some sort of a strategic role. So uh, more to come on that. But I, I do think that if, if the courts were to just try it a little bit, they would find that it's not as bad as they think it's going to be. Edward Adams, thank you so much for reaching out to us after listening to our show uh, online and for asking us to consider this issue, because it is such an impenetrable wall. Some people can go on and listen to Supreme Court cases being argued, uh, only the audio of it, but we never get to see what's inside that building unless we wait, go to Washington and wait in line. And, you know, at the same time that these magnificent decisions of constitutionality are being rendered uh, right in front of us in the Supreme Court, you go over to Italy and you watch sort of the circus that is the Amanda Knox uh, case. And, and granted, you want justice being properly executed, and if she is innocent, to, to have her released. But so much of the world's focus is on just one case in Italy, and these incredibly moments of, of incredible weight uh, are not seen by, by any American. So thanks so much for raising our awareness of it and coming on the show. It was my pleasure. Good work, guys. nice to pick up a, a guest who's a listener reaching out through polyoptics.com, Josh. Absolutely. You know, and, and Ed raised a point that, that you and I had both sort of struggled with, which is we see a lot of coverage of the executive branch and the legislative branch, but we just don't know what happens behind the walls in the judicial branch unless we go on to these audio files or read the opinions. And it's not the same as Chuck Todd reporting from the White House lawn or Nancy Cordes reporting from the Capitol. Indeed. And uh, as a former uh, producer and reporter at ABC News, I can tell you that uh, 
struggling to bring that information to the uh, to the general public is exactly as you put it, Josh. It's a it's an it's an element of of taking a court. Uh, artists drawing and trying to give life over top of it, and I think we're better than that. Uh, but uh, a great topic. I also want to point out, Josh, that uh, we got through a lot of stuff on this week's polyoptics, and I love the fact that we are getting even more certainty about that 2012 race you and I are thinking of and getting ready for some uh, pretty interesting episodes of polyoptics in the in the weeks and months to come. Uh, but uh, we are fast approaching yet another debate in 2012, Josh. That's right. Next week, uh, uh, we are in New Hampshire in Dartmouth College, and so the issues will get back to uh, those that are on the hearts and minds of Granite State voters. I think we'll we are, we'll be so focused on the Rick Perry dynamic. You know, uh, we've focused on him a lot on this show. We were we were amazed by his quick entrance. We we sort of followed the narrative as he he ran into uh, the buzzsaw of his own voice in the last debate. Uh, he had a lot of trouble last week with the the story around the name of his ranch, which I think, you know, uh, has so many layers of complexity to it. And then he shows us this week with a fundraising quarter of $17 million. So now that uh, Chris Christie is out, now that Sarah Palin is out, this field is set. Mitt Romney looks formidable. He's established a foreign policy team. He's doing everything that a, that a front-running candidate does. But will the Republican primary voter uh, gel to that, or is Perry ready to rebound with a very strong performance in Hanover? Absolutely. And the President of the United States should not be discounted. He uh, has tipped his hand just ever so much this week, letting uh, both the Republican nominees and the Congress at large know that if they take the opportunity to get something done, then he won't have to run against a do-nothing Congress. But it looks like that's what they're gearing up for. More to come every week. On Polyoptics, you can find us on polyoptics.com, on Facebook, but always on POTUS, Politics United States, Sirius XM, Channel 124.